Recovery Elevator, episode 232. I have to do my morning routine. Otherwise, I just can't manage my emotions. My emotions manage me. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Arlena. She's 50 years young. She's from Eagle, Idaho. What a cool name for a town. And she's been alcohol-free for 25 days. Nope, nope, wait, wait. Let me look at my notes. 25 months. Nope, that's still wrong. Holy buckets, 25 years. Nice job, Arlena. She talks about how she chased that feeling she got from alcohol her entire life. It's a fantastic interview. You guys are going to love it. This upcoming January 20th to the 31st, 2020, Recovery Elevator is doing a sober travel retreat in Thailand and Cambodia. And here are some reasons why the mind is probably telling you that you can't or shouldn't go. It's going to say, it's on the other side of the world. It's not cheap. Regarding my sobriety, I'm in a good spot. I got this. I don't speak Thai or Khmer. I don't know anyone who's going. This sounds uncomfortable. I don't know if I can stay sober before the trip. I hear you. Those are all valid, but be conscious of where those thoughts are coming from. Now, here are some reasons I think you should go. It's going to take new experiences, people, places, and things to create your new life. Traveling the world with others who no longer wish to drink alcohol is a magical experience. Listen to the body, heart, and soul. It wants you to go. Thai food, elephants, bike rides through rice paddy fields, anger what? Create accountability and put the trip on the calendar. You'll build that alcohol-free community that the heart has been yearning for all along. Go to recoveryelevator.com for the full itinerary and details. Okay, let's get started. A listener sent me a New York Times article titled Sober Curious, and it got my wheels spinning. By the way, you can find a link to this article in the episode 232 show notes in your podcast media player or on the recoveryelevator.com website. Oh yeah, and thank you, Carrie Mack, for being of service and volunteering to do the show notes. You rock. Okay, this term, which has popped up only in the last couple years, is called sober curious. And well, since I have all the answers and know all there is to know about alcohol, addiction, sobriety, recovery, I thought I'd take some time to share with you about what Sober Curious is all about. So, what is Sober Curious? I mean, what, 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 is, uh, what is Sober Curiosity? What is Sobriety Curiousness? What is the, uh, the, the curious sober monkey named George Eat for Breakfast? What is, is he Sober Curious? What is Sober Curious? Fuck, guys, I have no idea what Sober Curious is. So I'm partly joking, but I'm actually totally serious. On the surface level, the term sober curious is pretty straightforward. It's those who are curious about exploring a life without alcohol. But if you unpack it a little more, there's a lot to it. So stick with me. First off, I think it's so cool that a publication of this magnitude is dedicating some serious real estate, both online and in print, to this massive alcohol-free movement that is happening today. In fact, they'd be silly not to cover it. And I've seen several articles about quitting drinking, sober curious, Americans are no longer drinking as much, it's time to quit, dry 2019, etc. In major publications like CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Vox, The Economist, LA Times, and etc. And before, all we saw were the canned articles about how drinking wine each day could make you live till 132 years old, which is all bullshit anyways. In fact, most of the studies that these articles cover are funded by big alcohol. So, hell yeah, we're going in the right direction. All right, 10 to 15 years ago, when we were getting sober, it was just two options, alcoholic or not. Not long ago, if you declined an ethanol-filled beverage at a dinner party, people would assume you were in recovery, or a drink would send you and your marriage with Dale into a tailspin. People would assume you're pregnant, or assume you recently joined the Mormon church. But today... Thanks to more people than ever waking up to the fact that alcohol is shit, people don't jump to these conclusions and the stigma is softening because more people than ever are sober curious. When I hear sober curious, I go in two directions. For some, sober curious may mean that they never had a drinking problem, but they had a problem with drinking. 
Okay, that kind of makes sense. And I'm sure this is the case with some Q millennials, but I'm calling BS on the majority. For example, I'm not onion curious. I'm not exploring a trip through the salad bar without onions because I don't have a problem with onions. My eyes have a problem with onions, but I don't. So if it's not a problem in my life, I'm not curious about it. I'm not shower curious or jogging curious or frosted flakes curious or blackjack curious. Now for others, they may be gambling curious or sex curious or Ben and Jerry's curious or Nordstrom's curious, nail biting curious, bin shopping on Amazon after midnight curious or sober curious. This is kind of like Lent. You know, when I was a kid, my mom wanted me to give up something for Lent. I said, awesome, mom. I'm going to give up loading the dishwasher and broccoli. She's like, well, Paul, it doesn't work that way. I said, yes, it does, mom. She said, no, it doesn't. She won. She said, Paul, you need to give up something you crave or desire. She asked me if I was cartoon curious. I'm kidding. She didn't say cartoon curious, but she did say, hey, Paul, how do you feel about giving up cartoons? I loved my cartoons. So in this New York Times article, I like how Ruby Warrington describes these sober, curious people. She says these are young professionals who are kind of just a little bit addicted to booze. I think she nailed it. Part of me says, let's call a spade a spade. You've got a drinking problem. But even that can be harsh for a lot of people. So what would we call it? You've heard me say on this podcast, there are several terms in addiction and recovery we need to throw out like the word alcoholic, maybe even the word recovery. Maybe this is a term or phrase that has come to replace some of these antiquated terms. What if someone goes into the doctor's office and says, you know what, doctor? I think I'm, I think, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I think I'm sober curious. Cool. Who cares? Who gives a shit? If someone feels more comfortable reaching out for help with a softer phrase like sober curious, then fuck yeah. Who cares? Once a person does become sober curious, then the most powerful healing potion awareness has been brought to the table. In my opinion, the bulk of this demographic of people who are sober curious have entered the risky drinking category, but only a toe or a pinky finger. They are the highest of high bottom drunks. They are beginning to encounter consequences with their drinking, and they are becoming curious to what a life without alcohol looks like. They are starting to question their drinking and ask the million dollar question, which answers the question if you simply ask the question of, do I have a drinking problem? In fact, the phrases gray area drinking and sober curious might be synonymous. I personally was never sober curious. I drank, then drank some more, then drank, and then drank, and then, oh fuck, I realized I needed to quit. I would go out on a limb and say most listeners of this podcast aren't sober curious. They are sober bound. So earlier I say more people than ever are sober curious. There are a couple of ways to rephrase this. One way is more people than ever are struggling with addiction. And that's unfortunately a fact. Or more people than ever are seeking social environments that foment authentic connection. Both are probably accurate. And it may sound strange for me to say this as a recovery podcast host, but both are good because now more people than ever before are collectively waking up and realizing that alcohol is shit. So what do you think of sober curious? Are these people who never had a drinking problem, but have a problem with drinking? Is this simply a new creative way to describe someone who is starting to experience problematic drinking? Is this like a Mickey Mouse alcoholic? I don't know. What do you think? Don't take my word for it. And before we hear from Arlena, let's hear from today's sponsor, BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? In early sobriety, I experienced some intense cravings to feel differently, and I wanted to use alcohol to make that happen. It's helpful to talk to somebody about these cravings. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. 
You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash elevator. That's Better, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash elevator. And join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. For Recovery Elevator listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash elevator. Arlena, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Arlena, it's great to have you on the podcast. I cannot wait to share your story with listeners. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I My sobriety date is April 23rd of 94, so I just hit 25 years. April 23rd of 1994, 25 years. Holy coconuts, Arlena. I'm looking at... <laughs> I have an Excel spreadsheet that I've printed out. It's on my wall. I'm going to do a quick scan. I'm episode 12, an interview guy named Paul, who's got 34 years. I think you might, oh, A, have the record for females interviewed on this podcast, but I think you might be second overall. That is incredible. I cannot wait to dive into this interview <laughs> and, and talk about 25 years alcohol free. Real quick, what's what's it been like? <laughs> It's been awesome. I'm so glad I've been able to put it down and not pick it up again. I had my last drink on my 25th birthday, and from from that time to this, it's been quite a journey. I, I do participate in a 12-step program, and they talk about being rocketed into the fourth dimension, and that has definitely been true for me over the last 25 years. I'm very grateful to be sober. I've got 100 questions that I want to ask you. <laughs> about your journey and even like stuff that, hey, I'm approaching five years. What can I expect in the next 20 years <laughs> type questions? Before we get there, Arlena, give listeners some background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? Uh, and most importantly, Arlena, what do you like to do for fun? Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. So I'm 50. So I've been sober half my life. I grew up in Silicon Valley, uh, the San Jose Bay Area actually grew up in Sunnyvale and went to high school in Cupertino, where Apple is located. So just right in the heart of Silicon Valley. My parents are super nice people. They do not have any issues with drugs or alcohol. I, I was raised in the church. And despite all that, I was very clever and learned how to change my feelings by drinking at a pretty young age. I had actually been, you know, I had some traumatic things happen when I was young, including my parents' divorce and some sexual abuse by a neighbor. And I, I feel like those are kind of the things that were at the roots of my alcoholism. But, you know, fast forwarding to now, I, you know, I have a family. I have two boys, uh, 18 and 15, who've never seen me loaded. I've been married to my husband now for, oh gosh, I think it's, and you know what's funny, Paul, is I met him when I was five months sober, and we've been together ever since. Wow. So he, <laughs> we've been together my entire sobriety. He's just a really solid, super nice guy. You would love him. He's a super nice guy. He's been sober, too. He got sober when he was 18 and never relapsed. And, yeah, we've raised our kids uh, in a sober home, and it hasn't been without its challenges, uh, you know, because, you know, take away the alcoholism and I'm still left with my human frailties. Right. So those are the, that's what I've been grappling with mostly over the 25 years. Um, my life has been largely dedicated to like emotion management. If that makes any sense, mm -hmm. you know, addressing all the things, all the ghosts from the past and all the demons and confronting all the, that stuff and, you know, cleaning up the past. Yeah. Addressing all that without alcohol. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But with the help of God and a support group and, you know, lots of tools. I was given lots of tools when I showed up to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 25. And I just really, the only thing I did was stayed sober that whole time. There was a lot of asking for help in there. So it wasn't like and I did anything of merit, really. Like, I just feel super lucky and blessed that I uh, was desperate enough that I mm -hmm. just took tons of action. There you go. And before we start unpacking all this stuff, what do you like to do for fun? Oh my goodness. So I, 
I do everything super obsessively. So like I, I also have a podcast and so that's a big part of my life, uh, which is super fun. I've talked to people all over the country. I like to do things like, uh, you know, we're kind of into fitness. I do some yoga and uh, we go for long walks and hikes and things like that. I'm expecting a bulldog puppy next week. Oh, wow. uh, we just lost What's our, I know I'm, his name is going to be Teddy. Love it. He's the cutest little thing ever. I can't wait to meet him next week. We uh, recently lost our our other bulldog Gus, and so uh, the house felt so empty without a without a little furry baby in it. Sure. So I'm really excited about that. But uh, yeah, I spend a lot of time hanging out with other women in sobriety, and I don't know. I, there seems to be no shortage of things to do when you're sober. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. And Arlena, give listeners some background about your drinking. So I understand you got sober on your 25th birthday. You've been sober for half your life. <laughs> my fingers are crossed right now as yeah. I say this. I hope I reach a milestone in my life where I can say, you know what? I've been sober for half my life. That is awesome. And so bring us up to a speed. Give us a little background on your drinking of, of what ramped up to make that decision on your 25th birthday. Um, but I'd like to spend the bulk of this podcast talking about the 25 years after your drink. But take take the time yes. needed to bring us up to speed. Yes, thank you. And I'm glad you mentioned that uh, we should spend some time talking about the solutions because I feel like my drinking is kind of garden variety, right? Like I started drinking really young. And I don't even know why I started drinking, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I have an older sister, and uh, she and I were home alone. Um, my mom went out on a date, um, and my sister and I were home alone, and I decided that it would be a great idea to take a drink. And uh, there was a bottle in the cabinet. It was like a clear bottle with brown liquid. I remember mixing it with juice, and I remember my sister wasn't drinking, by the way. It was just me. I remember taking that glass, putting it to my lips, and it burned my mouth. It burned my lips. It burned all the way down. But when it hit bottom, I felt this warmth spread through my body. And I didn't really realize how bad I felt until I felt really good. It was like all the self-consciousness, all the self-loathing, all the self-hatred that I had, sort of all the guilt and I don't know what to call it, but it was like guilt and shame that I had been feeling. By the way, I was about 10 years old. It was between 8 and 10. I don't actually really know how old it was because that period was kind of a blur for me. But, you know, it makes me sad to think that my little girl, my little 8, 10-year-old girl self felt the need to do that. But the magical moment when when the, all, that, all those negative feelings were lifted, all that was left was this amazing feeling of relief. And I have chased that feeling my whole life. I used to say I chased that feeling until I got sober, but let's be real. You know, in my everyday life, you know, present day, there are moments when I just really need relief. I just don't drink over it anymore. I have other coping skills, but growing up, I just didn't have any coping skills. So from my first drink to my last drink, I had, I have many, many moments of feeling horrible about who I was. I wanted to be anybody but me. That was like sort of the reoccurring theme in my younger years, even when I was drinking, that I wanted to be anybody else but me. Yeah, I can resonate and with that. I, yeah, like I had that chameleon thing going. Like I could be anybody you wanted me to be. Just love me. I just wanted to be a part of. I just wanted to feel accepted, but I didn't. I felt like an imposter the whole time. And it was, it was really, it was a difficult way to live to be perfectly honest. <laughs> so where I come from, I sort of have like this, this tagline. I've been speaking at meetings for a long time. And my tagline has always been that if it was in a bottle, a bag or blue jeans, I was doing it because <laughs> I would do anything, anything to change the way I felt. Right. Like I was, I was, uh, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. Right. I like, thought love would save me. Well, externally. Yeah. You know, all those I, things are external, external. Yeah. I was looking for external things. It's kind of interesting because in the end, love did save me. It just didn't show up the way I thought it would. I thought I was looking for the knight in shining armor, but it turns out love showed up in the eyes of somebody else who understood the pain that I was going through. You know, it, it, it showed up to me in the, in, through women, through the women that love me until I could love myself. You know, I'm just so grateful that, you know, there was like a sequence of events that, that led me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll be forever grateful that that's where I ended up because that's when the magic started to happen. Sure. 
Now walk us up to age 25. It sounds like at age eight or around age 10, you found that magical elixir that connected the heart and soul within, and you were chasing that, that feeling. You mentioned your entire life, which I appreciate your honesty with that. Um, cause we all continue to chase that even after we take that last drink. But before age 25, you, you, you found that connectivity with the external substance, alcohol, bring us up to speed. Perhaps in your twenties, was there a rock bottom moment, um, on your 25th birthday? Well, I should clarify. So I did have my last drink on my 25th birthday, but I was on the marijuana maintenance program for another five months. So my birthday is in November, but my sobriety date is in April. So, and I did have a series of rock bottom moments. I felt like I was kind of skipping along rock bottom for a little while. And it was interesting, Paul, because if there was like a two year period, there was a, like a rock bottom moment where I was like, I, ha- I was ha- I had this night with my sister where she and I went out and I got really loaded and I was dating this married policeman, which is why I have no DUIs. And he and I broke up. And side note, by the way, the only married man I sleep with now is my husband, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he and I had broken up and I had been dating his best friend because that's, <laughs> that's just how uh, chaotic and dramatic my life was. And this guy that I had been dating didn't show up. And I was really upset. And on the way home, my sister, it was my sister and I, and she was driving my little, I had this cute little truck and she was driving and we went past my ex-boyfriend policeman. He had pulled somebody over and was giving a field sobriety test, but kind of ironic. And I just, apparently I lost my mind. And this was not an uncommon situation for me when I was drinking. It seemed like when I would ingest alcohol, I just could never predict my behavior. And I have like two alter egos. It was like either badass Betsy or wimpy Wendy because I found that when I started drinking, all my emotions would just overflow, right? I was either fighting or crying. It was just totally unpredictable. I just never knew who was going to come out. But this particular night, it was like a combination of both. I was really angry and really sad. I punched my windshield in a couple of places and broke it and I hurt my hand. And listen, this is all secondhand information. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I was, she said I was trying to jump out of the car. I was trying to crash the car while she was trying to drive it. I kicked her in the face while she was driving and gave her a bloody nose. She managed to pull the car over and she went to a neighbor's house. I think we got really close to home. She went to a neighbor's house and, and got help and the police were called. But for whatever reason, they didn't take me to jail. And the next morning is when I heard what happened, right? I had to get the story secondhand because mm-hmm. I couldn't remember most of it. I had like that. Like, did you ever have those evenings where you remember bits and pieces that it all feels like a dream and you're not sure which parts are real? Yeah, I had about 712 of those. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so it was one of those. But... I woke up with that pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization again, again. It was like, I can't believe I did this again. And I was just so clueless. I was like, how did I get here again? Like just this horrible place. And, you know, she went to Al-Anon after that. Like she told me the story, what happened. She was so disgusted with me and so angry and so hurt. And I was, you know, I felt horrible, obviously, You know, it took me hearing her saying that she went to Al-Anon and I was like, what? I was so confused. Like I didn't even, even though all that had happened, I didn't connect my drinking to alcoholism, right? It took me two years to wrestle with that idea because I had to ask myself, well, what is an alcoholic? When did I cross the line? Where is the line? Like, how how do you know? Does this mean I have to stop drinking forever? And oddly enough, my mom had actually dated somebody that was an Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 14. So, you know, uh, 11 years later, you know, so it, it was almost like the seed had been planted. And so I started I started asking all the questions that eventually led me to the conclusion that, yeah, definitely I'm, I'm an alcoholic because I cannot control. So, Arlena, that can be the hardest part of the journey where we're grappling with what is an alcoholic? Am I someone who fits into that check box? Am I this person? For me, it took three or four years wrestling with that. But once I finally reached that conclusion, like you just said, the word conclusion, that's when the rubber hit the road. Like there's a huge weight that lifted off my shoulders. Talk to us about that, what it was like for you when when you reached that conclusion. Yeah, when I finally reached that conclusion, you know, it was such a humbling experience because in my mind I had defined alcoholism in a certain way that was so negative. 
and I was carrying so much guilt and shame. I hated who I was anyway. So to add alcoholism, alcoholic on top of that, drug addict on top of that, so overwhelming. But the truth of the matter is, is that I was dying. It's like the thing that was my solution had become my executioner because I wanted to die. I hated who I was, right? And I couldn't bear it anymore. And it just wasn't working for me. So it was tough. It was a tough pill to swallow. It was a, a high barrier of entry, but I was so desperate. I was like, I was desperate. Listen, I had been living in the self-help section of Barnes and Noble. I, I was trying to think. I was trying to think my way into yeah. right living. Yep, yeah, read your and way out I didn't, of it. Yeah, I thought if I could just find the secret, if I could just figure out what was wrong with me, I could, I could fix it. And what I didn't know until I got sober is that I was trying to think my way into right living. And what I know, the solution is about living your way into right thinking. The solution is about knowing that I cannot fix myself, that I need a higher power to relieve me of my, not just my alcoholism and my addiction, but of all my character defects that lead me to a place of like that bondage of self where I'm just frustrated, anxious, restless, irritable, discontent. Like I'm powerless over all that stuff. You know, I can't fix me. I'm not powerless over everything. Like I have power over my choices, but once I start drinking, I don't. That that for me is like the big differentiator is that, you know, I do have to participate and do lots of action, but ultimately I felt like it was a higher power that relieved my alcoholism. And Arlene, I love earlier how you said you're the solution became the executioner. And that's when, um, and for me, I'm in the book that I write alcohol is shit. I talk about writing a formal, a dear John letter, because most of us reach that conclusion where alcohol, who for me, it was my best friend. It no longer works for us. And we have to formally depart from that. So it sounds like you departed from it. And do you, can you remember what it was like the first six months, the first year without alcohol? Because it's not like life just stops happening. You facing all you're facing all this stuff without without alcohol. What was it like in early sobriety? You know, it was a period of extremes. To be perfectly honest, I felt like without the alcohol, I felt like this raw nerve ending. I felt like every feeling was magnified. I felt everything. And it was overwhelming, to be perfectly honest. But I was relieved of the obsession to use alcohol. I swear to God, the, the, the day after my birthday, I woke up and I looked my then boyfriend in the eye and I was like, I am never going to drink again. And I haven't. But uh, I was on that. Like I said, I was on the marijuana maintenance program for five months. But my sobriety really started when I quit smoking weed because I realized that I was powerless over that too. I couldn't do that in any kind of moderation. And so I realized that I needed to quit everything. So from that point on, that's when, that's when the healing really began because I was sort of forced to deal with my feelings as they came up. And it was interesting. I mean, to say the least, I, I found a sponsor right away and she was, she would talk to me a lot and I, I would want to talk. Right. And, but she had a lot to share with me. So it was interesting learning to listen for a change instead of talking all the time about myself. But at the, at the same time, when I was in pain, the first thing I would do is pick up the phone. I would pick up the phone and call another woman who had solutions for me, who didn't judge me, who got my kind of crazy, you know, I had to establish a new normal right? I, I discovered I was kind of high maintenance. I needed a morning routine where I would, you know, turn my will and my life over the care of God in the morning, try to nurture that conscious contact throughout the day. I needed to go to several meetings a week. I needed to do service. I need to be held accountable, right? Service for me is huge. And the book talks about, I realize I'm very heavily 12-step oriented and not everybody is, but regardless, if you look at any kind of religion or program or whatever service is always a major component because it does two things it gets us out of self and it builds self-esteem right and that was something I desperately needed when I first got sober I needed to repair my self-esteem because I hated who I was so you know and it was really a one day at a time thing it was really some days were like when my feelings felt too big it was sometimes it was moment by moment 
right? Like I would, I would journal. And oh, and the other thing that I did all the time was I listened to, I discovered this speaker, her name is Marianne Williamson, and she does lectures on a book called A Course in Miracles, which was hugely helpful to me in the beginning. And what I would do is I would get her <laughs> cassette tapes, because that's how old I am. I would get her cassette tapes and just listen to her lecture on solutions, like loving solutions all the time. And it would actually, it would literally drown out the critic in my mind. And that's something that, you know, now we have things like podcasts and, and, you know, everyone has a cell phone that has all kinds of audio programs on it. You, there is no reason to, you know, spend time listening to the critical committee in your mind. There's, you can always fill it with something positive, right? Arlena, I saw my man Eckhart Tolle talk in L.A. I think April 13th of this year in Marianne Williamson. Mm-hmm. Um, where they were like co-sharing the stage. It was a great talk. Uh, great, great stuff they have out there. And earlier mentioned that life is just more raw. And I like that description of what it's like without alcohol. It's almost as if someone takes the volume level of life and just turns it up a couple notches because things come at you fast. Can yeah. you can you talk about a specific moment early on in sobriety when you, you experienced these emotions. It was raw. They were coming at you fast. And was there a specific time when you thought about going back? No, I can honestly say no. I mean, listen, alcoholism for me was a near-death experience. And I never wanted to go back to I was so afraid of getting loaded again that I did all the things that they told me to do. And when when I was in just so much pain, I would reach out to the women and I would share my pain with them and they would love on me. And it, it was love. Like I said, it was love that saved me. I don't even, you know, it really, there's no other way to put it. It's, when my feelings got too big, I had to share them. And I remember this guy at meetings used to say that joy shared is expanded and pain shared uh, dissipates. And that was true for me. I would share my pain and it would dissipate. Journaling was also like, you know, sometimes, you know, the feelings hit in the middle of the night, right? And and journaling was also very helpful to just get it all out of my head and onto paper would would diffuse it enough to to get me through the evening or the night till I could till I could reach out for help. Sure. Let's talk about the the why behind your drinking. Earlier you mentioned divorce as a child, some sexual abuse. Um, when did you start to experience the why or, or, you, or do you agree with the drinking is but a symptom and that we're using alcohol to cover up past traumas, uncomfortable feelings? And when did you start to address that, that, you know, that inner turmoil in sobriety? I 100% believe that alcohol is but a symptom. And, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've done a, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I'm an obsessive learner. And I've read many books about neuroscience and psychology over the years. And what's interesting is that the brain will try to protect you from your pain. And if you can't get out of it, it will develop um, a distraction. And really that's, I hate to say it, but that's what alcoholism and drug addiction, whether it's in the, you know, there's, and listen, there's many forms of addiction, right? There's shopping, there's pornography, there's, I mean, you can, you know, there's workaholism. I've seen people use exercise um, addictively. But those are all things to distract us from our pain. And Gabor Mate wrote this book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. <laughs> this is my top, yeah. top, top five recovery books, maybe top three. I love that right? book. So good, so good. And what I got from that is that, and I've heard it before, Oprah, I think, it, I don't know who she was talking to. I don't remember. It may have, been, may have been Eckhart Tolle, but it was like the lesson I got was that time does not heal all wounds. The pain waits, right? And a lesson is repeated until it's learned. And I found that if I didn't give my feelings some space, if I didn't try to figure out what the lesson was underneath the trigger, you know, there are certain situations that would absolutely trigger me. And I would, I would recognize that my response to a situ- situation was uh, disproportionate to what was actually happening. That was a sign of something deeper was going on, right? But that, that's the whole point of addiction and alcoholism and all that stuff. It's a distraction from our, our pain. But when we have enough support or a process, if you can find the right spiritual guide, the right therapist, whatever, to help you confront those 
things, those feelings and resolve them. And maybe some things can't be resolved. I understand that people face horrific, horrific traumas in their lives. I mean, over the 25 years I've been sober, I have heard some stories that would just, it's, it amazes me that people survive their childhood sometimes or their lives, really. But I understand now that with the support of someone else, I can face my feelings. And once I face them and deal with them, they no longer have the power to propel me or make me pick something up in that compulsive, addictive, alcoholic way. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It reminds me of the Carl Jung line, what you resist persists. And there's yeah. this compassionate universe that will continuously put us in situations that reflect the imbalance in our energy field. And yeah. we are presented with these situations so we can blast through inner turmoil where our circuits are adequately built. And that's with anxiety. That's a people-pleasing skills. That's loneliness. And for a while, yeah. I ran away from that stuff. And, and now I'm starting to realize it in the last three to four years more so than ever in this last year, say, wait a second, all right, this is all working for me and not against me. Have you started to see that as well? I'm sure you have a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, a long time ago. And that, you know, the funny thing about being a human being is that we just forget what the solutions are, right? Which is why I still have a sponsor. I've been sober 25 years. I still have a sponsor because as situations come up in my life, it's helpful to have an objective third-party be able to witness the situation and offer guidance, you know, compassionate guidance towards the solution. And Arlene, let me ask you a question about character defects. And so AA was a big part of my, my journey. I got a sponsor, did the 12 steps, incredible sponsor. Um, but I explored tons of recovery uh, platforms and, and, and routes. And one thing that I'm not the biggest fan of is, is consistently dwelling on our character defects at the end of a day. You know, write down our character defects, like how we fucked up during the day. When do we start focusing our efforts on what we're good at, um, our, our skill sets instead of our, our strengths and our weaknesses? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well... I, I get where you're coming from, but I, was, I wasn't taught to just focus on my character defects. Actually, the, the big book talks about assets and liabilities. And for some reason, defects of character get a lot of attention because that's probably where the danger is, right? But the whole point of recovery and being in balance is to notice both sides, right? And for me and my recovery and my community and the message I tried to carry is let's build our self-esteem, which requires focus on the assets, right? It's my defects that get me in trouble, which is why I'm vigilant about those. And, you know, listen, if we don't like the word character defects, we can also just say human frailties because defects of character seem to be tied to alcoholism and addiction and stuff like that. But the truth of the matter is, is every human being has human frailties. Everybody has a cross to bear, right? We all struggle with something. Absolutely. And I like how you said the balance. In episode 224, I talk about which wolf will you feed. You cannot ignore a part of your personality. So sure, you've got the character defects, but also you have the assets. And it's important to recognize, place awareness on both of them. Um, and earlier you mentioned you chased that feeling your entire life. Everybody on this podcast or everybody that's listening right now understands that. But with some of them that we don't understand, and I'm still learning, is, is how, how you chase that feeling in sobriety and how you, how you do it now with that alcohol. Well, you know, the feeling I was chasing was, was relief. But what I really like to feel is happiness and joy, right? Those are my favorite feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be honest, you know, service is such a funny, it's such a, fun, it's such a paradox because I never want to do it, but I'm always so grateful that I did do it. Right. It's like, Oh, I'd rather just like binge watch Netflix or just chill out or do my nails or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, isolate in my house. That's another favorite thing. That's not good for me, but you know, being of service, is actually when I experience joy, like when I'm working with another woman in Alcoholics Anonymous or any other, I, even, even when I'm working with people at work, you know, you become friends with people out in the world and they share their troubles with you. And if I can do something to alleviate someone else's suffering, 
that's when I feel like I'm doing my purpose. And when I'm in my purpose, that is really when I feel the most joy, like I'm good enough. I'm doing God's will. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel it builds my self-esteem. There's just something, and there's an energy that I feel that is palpable. It's, it's magical when I'm able to be of service and I don't feel like it's, it's me necessarily. It feels like something bigger is happening. And I love that feeling. So that's definitely a feeling that I chase that is actually good for me. Being of service is huge on this journey. If we do it with the proper mindset. For example, I met somebody right. a couple of years ago that said, well, my sponsor told me if I don't be of service, if I don't come in early and make coffee or help other people, then I'm going to drink again. So I'm going to come in and make coffee. I'm going to help people. Doing that is great. It's it's better than drinking, but you're doing that out of a fear that an un, un, unwanted outcome will occur, which I'm just hearing from you is if you do service out of love, out of compassion of something you want to add value to the planet, then you will receive what you get in the feeling of joy, compassion, and happiness. So it's important listeners to keep in mind if you are being of service, question the motives behind it. You need to be doing service because you want to add value. You want to help somebody else, not out of fear that you're, that you're going to end up drunk. Um, that, that's a huge mindset shift to have. I want to ask you a question though, because in the beginning I was so twisted up. Like I just did what I was told. Right. And I, there were times when I did do service just because I was told to do it. And then I would leave feeling better. So even though like, like it helped me to spite myself sometimes in the beginning. I think I, I agree with you overall. It's important to find service that is right for you. Like there's a bazillion ways to be of service, right? So it's important to be of service to find, you know, try different things. But I found that even, even when I had a bad moment motive, sometimes it's still, I still benefited. You know totally. what I mean? Like it did, it did, it did, it helped me to spite myself, <laughs> which is, sort of God's grace, uh, it seems like. But I totally agree. You should find service that, that lights you up. Don't do something that you hate, like, <laughs> repeatedly. And don't and don't give – here's another big thing, you know, boundaries. Like, I, I see a lot of people, like, especially if you have a people-pleaser thing about you, that you cannot give beyond your ability to give without resentment, right? Like, if you find yourself giving, 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 giving to this one person and it's, you know, it's not reciprocated or – you're doing it out of, like you said, a bad motive that will create resentment. So it's, it's important to be mindful about how, like you said, your motive, but the how and why um, you're trying to be of service. You have to be like people with the people pleaser thing need to be careful of giving beyond their ability to give without resentment. And, and listeners, Arlena has a podcast called Odat Chat, One Day at a Time Chat. Talk to us about that. What was the motivation to start um, that incredible project? What are some themes you've, you've, you've learned while doing the podcast? And how has it helped your sobriety? And has it added extra pressure to you? There's 55 questions there. Sorry about that. I'm curious. <laughs> Talk to us about it. <laughs> That's okay. I have a pen. I wrote a few down. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the reason why I started the podcast, so I had actually, I'm a huge Tim Ferriss fan and I've been listening to his podcast and he was kind of in the Silicon Valley mode and, and I'm in Silicon Valley. I'm in high tech sales. I've been doing high tech sales for a good long time and there were no women podcasters in the sales high tech field. So I was like, oh, I'm totally going to do that. So I started a sales podcast and then it was really on my heart to do one for recovery, but I was conflicted. Because in the 12 traditions, you know, they state that maintain our anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. And I felt very torn about that. And then tragedy struck. A, a girlfriend of mine had been at a, a, a 6 a.m. meeting called ODAT, which is where I got the name of the podcast. She had been at the meeting at 9 at a 6 a.m. and she died three hours later. She was in a car wreck. And she and I were about the same age. And I thought, you know, death has a way of clar clarifying the bullshit, right? Like, I was like, what am I waiting for? Whose permission do I need to follow the guidance that is on my heart, right? So I decided to be bold and start the podcast. And it has been such a miracle for me in my life. I don't know. I've just made so many heart connections with people all, all over the country. Some amazing stories have come out of it. 
it has added both a little bit of pressure and, but so much joy to my life. It's, it's my main, since I moved to a new area, I'm like a newcomer again. I'm having to reestablish relationships out here. And the podcast though is totally carrying me through because I have met, you know, lots of people. Um, I have lots of episodes to publish and I'm doing live step work calls now, which is a fun little project. I wanted to be able to give people who are sort of on the fence a little bit of visibility into what someone's transformation could look like as they go through the steps. I was always told that if you work the steps, the steps will work you. That's been my experience. I've seen it countless times over 25 years. Just I've witnessed firsthand people change before my eyes. So that's why I'm publishing the step work calls. I'm just so great. And and you asked me about theme and it's interesting that the circumstances may be different, but the feelings are all the same. There's always the feelings of powerlessness and unmanageability, desperation. And then it's the hero's journey, right? Like Joseph Campbell talks about the hero. It's like the prodigal son returns. You know, people are restored to their fam- to their right minds. Families are healed. Careers are established. I mean, it's just amazing to have a front row seat to this amazing, you know, journey that I see, you know, happening over and over again. And I'm super grateful. Arlena, I'm so glad you pushed past that fear you had with starting the podcast because I had the same fear. And AA got so much right in 1935, including the anonymity component. However, a lot has changed since 1935. And if I could use your word you said earlier, I'm going to say bullshit with the anonymity is the less, the more we talk about this, um, the more progress we're going to see collectively in a collaborative healing effort across the planet. And Mm -hmm. you're right. I had that same fear when I uploaded the first episode and I got my first email. I didn't open up that email from a listener for a couple of days out of fear that it was going to be um, someone in the program saying, oh, press film radio. Um, And I've had a little bit of pushback, but the overall consensus, even from people in the program, out of the program, normal drinkers is like, hell yeah, this needs to be talked about. The stigma is alive and real, just as dangerous as the alcohol and drugs itself. Let's, uh, let's talk about it. Um, I love it. Nice job listeners. It's one day it's ODAT chat. Um, how can they, how can they find the podcast and website and stuff like that? Yeah, it's on iTunes and Google play and Spotify. You know, I didn't think it through when I named it. it uh, ODAT is O-D-A-A-T. <laughs> uh, sometimes people tell me I can't find it and they're looking for O-D-A-T. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. but, oh, well. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. uh, sometimes they can find it by looking up my name, Arlena Allen, and my initials are AA, which I think is hilarious. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, odatchat.com is my website, um, but you can find it on all the, all the usual places. Arlena, rapid fire round. Are you ready? Oh, I'm so scared. Go ahead. Worst memory <laughs> from drinking. Ready, go. Puking my guts out at the San Francisco Giants game in front of a whole bunch of fancy people. It was humiliating. You got 50 years of sobriety. What's your plan moving forward? Oh, 25 years of sobriety. Oh, sure. <laughs> Ty, Ty will edit that out. You know what, Ty? We won't edit this out because we all make mistakes. Plan moving forward. Fun. You're 26. How's it going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to happen one day at a time. Um, for instance, this morning I went for a walk and I broke out my Listen, I'm not super religious, but I have this amazing book called Jesus Calling. I love me some Jesus. And I read that and I drew my Gabby Bernstein card. It's a deck of cards called The Universe Has Your Back. That's uh, little things out of A Course in Miracles. And yeah, I do, you know, um, I have used the Headspace app to do a little meditation. And uh, I find that if I do that routine in the morning, my day goes so much better I totally skipped it on Tuesday and I paid for it. Like I was completely running on self-will and I was like, okay, I went to a meeting later that night. I'm like, I'm not doing that again. I have to do my morning routine. Otherwise I just can't manage my emotions. My emotions manage me. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, Follow your heart. Love that. (laughs) And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners we're thinking about quitting drinking. I would say, what's that thing about contempt prior to investigation? I would say there's a prayer called the set aside prayer, which is help me set aside everything that I think I know. 
so that new ideas can come in. I, I'm not saying the prayer exactly right, but set aside your contempt prior to investigation. Really open your mind and your heart, and you'll be amazed before you are halfway through. Arlena, before we depart, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic gift line. <laughs> you might be an alcoholic if you end up in an AA meeting. Fair enough. That works. Arlena, it was great <laughs> chatting with you today. It was great being with you today. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Also in that New York Times article was a mention of alcohol-free raves that take place in the early hours of the morning. I'm talking like 5 a.m. before work starts on a Tuesday morning. A company called Daybreaker, they can be found at daybreaker.com, is putting these events on in big cities. I don't use the word brilliant often on this podcast, but holy shit, Daybreaker, this is brilliant in so many ways. I'm looking at their website, and I'm trying to get a group of us to go to one of these Daybreaker 5 a.m. morning raves where zero, zilch, no alcohol is served. Wow. These photos look incredible. The video is amazing. So much cool stuff is happening in terms of the collective movement to depart from alcohol, go within, heal the inner disconnection, and reach the inner state of joy. Recovery Elevator, this isn't a no to alcohol, but a yes to a better life. I love you guys.